G'day you mob, Pete here, and this is another episode of Aussie English, the number one place for anyone and everyone wanting to learn Australian English. So, today I have a GOSS episode for you where I sit down with my old man, my father, Ian Smithson, and we talk about the week's news, whether locally down under here in Australia or non-locally <laughs> overseas in other parts of the world, okay? And we sometimes also talk about whatever comes to mind, right? If we can think of something interesting to share with you guys related to us or Australia, we also talk about that in the GOSS. So, these episodes are specifically designed to try and give you content about many different topics where we're obviously speaking in English and there are multiple people having a natural and spontaneous conversation in English. So, it is particularly good to improve your listening skills. In order to complement that though, I really recommend that you join the podcast membership or the academy membership at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get access to the full transcripts of these episodes, the PDFs, the downloads, and you can also use the online PDF reader to read and listen at the same time, okay? So, if you really, really want to improve your listening skills fast, Get the transcript, listen and read at the same time, keep practicing, and that is the quickest way to level up your English. Anyway, I've been rabbiting on a bit, I've been talking a bit. Let's just get into this episode, guys. Smack the bird, and let's get into it. Alrighty. G'day, guys. Welcome to this episode of The Goss. Here we are, back again. Back again. How still are you got going, Dad? Drink. Still got Well, it's a, it's a different drink, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> the other ones were in the uh, previous episodes. Mm-hmm. So, what's the story? Um, well, you sent me the story. <laughs> and I? yeah, I'm not going to get distracted like I did last time. Um, you sent me the story about the platypus being declared as endangered in Victoria. Yeah. And I thought that's a good opportunity because one of the tags in that story is about citizen science. So, I thought it'd be a good idea to talk about a couple of examples of that, some of which I've been involved in and um, just as an interesting idea of how people can get um, involved in large-scale scientific studies. So, Go for it. Give well, us you, the treatment. You can tell us a story about the platypus if you want. Or do well, you want this is another case of me reading my stories and not yours. So, All right. Well, you send it to me. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll do it if you like. Go for it. Um, so, yeah. So, this is about a week ago. Yeah. Um, the Victorian government listed, so I'm reading a bit here, listed the platypus as threatened in Victoria which is a sort of broader scale than specifically endangered, but it basically means that the population is in trouble, whatever the population is. And that's part of the problem is that there's very little broad-scale studies of platypus across the state or across Australia to understand um, where they are, how they're surviving, whether they're reproducing well or doing any of that sort of stuff. Because platypi or is it platypuses? Well, uh, it's platypi technically from the original root of the language. discus and disci? No, discus and discuses. I always get confused with these Discus is Greek, which is just- Greek words. Yeah, whereas Latin, um, the- the plural in with a word ending in US in Latin is I. So, mm. platypus, platypi, octopus, octopi. Yeah. Um, so, discus is discuses. Mm. Uh, so, go on. They're very cryptic, right? So, that's why yes. it's hard. They, they, yeah. 
live in the water. They tend to live in burrows on the banks of rivers and estuaries and, well, maybe not estuaries, but, but water, yeah, fresh clean, water, fresh water areas. And so, they're very difficult to find usually because mm. they're so skittish and yeah, like to keep yeah. to themselves, active at night. Yeah. So, this was a really cool study um, by a group looking at- large-scale just evidence of where they are as a starting point. So, uh, and you know yourself having done, you know, mammal work and reptile work that just going out to places and trapping um, is about the only way that you can find it or putting well, up do- cameras- um, and other ways, you know, mammals, you can you can collect scats, um, you can collect fur samples, those sort of things. But with an aquatic animal, an animal lives in water, it's very difficult. You can't go out there and put cameras up in every bit of every river and things to try and find them. And you can't trap them very easily. Um, and even trapping them is dangerous if they're underwater. You don't want to be trapping them in water and so on. So, there's the study they came up with was saying, well, they can do um, large-scale population evaluations by taking environmental DNA. So, just taking water yeah. samples and testing it for platypus DNA. Yeah. Um, and I thought that's a really cool way of doing it. I'd never heard of the idea before of mm-hmm. of actually just taking DNA out of water samples. When and soil samples species. too. Yeah. yeah. That's been on the go since I was doing my PhD mm. in, in evolutionary biology. So, they were doing that at the time for fish species, I think. In different areas, and they yeah. can just take a bit of water, run it through the, um, extract the DNA from it, and then see if you could right. PCR, PCR up any of up. these yeah. um, different Fragments. loci. Yeah. Mm. So I thought that was a really interesting story, um, and then I thought about it and said, well, how many other of these so-called citizen science things where this is not a group of small group of scientists who are going to go out and sample every piece of water in Victoria. They're just asking people to sample water and send it into them. Yeah. And and so, how many other sort of uh, studies are being done like that? Um, and there's a bunch of them, it turns out, um, some of which I was aware of before, but um, there's one around um, echidnas, which um, echidnas are Australia's widest distribute- distributed mammal. They're, along with platypus, they're the most primitive mammals. Mm. Uh, they, they're monotremes, so they still, they give, they don't give live birth, they lay eggs, uh, and raise those, you know, hatchlings out. Um, and they're the only two groups of, um, of mammals that do that. And so echidnas, again, because they're really widespread and they live in all sorts of, you know, almost from desert to rainforest yeah. um, across Australia, and there's a species in New Guinea as well. But other than knowing that they're around, there's been very little sort of broad-scale studies done of them. And so now there's just this um, another little citizen science thing just saying, if you see an echidna, take a photograph of it and send it to us, mm. um, you know. Geotag the photograph, um, and so they're going to start to build up a database of where echidnas actually are uh, around Australia. Again, they're um, they're not unusual to see. You can you know you can be driving along the road and see an echidna on the side of the road. Uh, but if you went out looking for echidnas, you might never find one. Yeah, well, and this the- is sort of like the Sean Dooley thing that he was talking about with kookaburras yeah. slowly disappearing from suburbia. Mm. And the only way that they've discovered that is through doing the citizen science um, yeah. bird week where they get people to go out there and for 20 minutes on a single day just record which birds they see. And in, I think that was when like, he in realized- In a location, you don't move, yeah. you just sit. Yeah. And he was saying that through that data, they realized that kookaburras are becoming less common in mm. suburban areas 
despite people still seeing them from time to time. But the only way for you to really know is by having your finger on the pulse with that kind of data coming in. And it'll be especially interesting to see how it goes over the long term, right? I imagine a lot of this is funded by museums or at least related to them. Museums or um, the case of Bird Week one with, yeah. you know, is is funded by BirdLife Australia. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it's a um, an international thing, BirdLife as an international organisation, and many countries do the same thing in the same week. Just go out and see how many birds you can see in your backyard. Yeah. Um, you know, the Backyard Birds Project, it started off being called. So, Do you think this is a sort of privilege of the modern age now where people do have the kind of spare time and money in terms of income and everything to be able to do that kind of thing mm. and to, to be able to have the time and interest to, to pursue those sorts of- um, backyard biology, science, you know, studies and everything. Because it seems like there are more and more people now interested in things like the Australian Bird Week and um, these sorts of citizen science things. And, I mean, that term is probably yes. only 10 years old, yeah, exactly. citizen science, where the average Joe can get involved and, and collect information that mm. can be used by scientists to help wild animals or solve other problems or look at other- investigate other things. Do you think that is because we- live in a day and, and age now where we are so affluent, because I imagine that there are very few people doing that in places like Ethiopia or, you know, where they have more pertinent issues to worry about than mm. whether or not they can count birds in their backyard. Yeah, look, I think it is. Um, well, there's two aspects to it. I think there's the the backyard birds is a good example of something that doesn't cost anybody anything other than 20 minutes of your time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you could do it. 20 times during that week in 20 different locations and record that data if you wanted to. But uh, mostly the idea is that just get everybody who's interested just to sit in their backyard for 20 minutes and just record which birds they see. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a sort of very low level of engagement into that citizen science thing. But if you get a million people doing it across this, the country- uh, and I have no idea of how many actually have, but yeah. if you get that sort of numbers, even a hundred thousand people doing well, it, it's vastly you get huge more amounts than of data. an individual could ever do. Exactly, you get huge amounts of data all taken at simultaneously, same, right? Yeah. At the same time, within a week. Yeah. So you get this huge snapshot of what's going on, and yeah. then you repeat it the next year, and the next year, and the next year, and then you get these. Not only do you get geographically distributed data collection, but you get longitudinal data as well. And so, that sort of thing is a huge project, but it requires very little um, motivation and input from an individual to do it. Then there are the uh, sort of the next step up is one that I've been involved in for a few years. Unfortunately, we couldn't do it this year because of COVID, but and that's the um, southeastern red-tailed black cockatoo, which is a bit of a mouthful for a species name or a subspecies. Um, <laughs> Hence the southwest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, southeast, southwest. southwest. Um, but red-tailed black cockatoos in southeastern Australia are threatened again, um, and they're very specific in terms of where they will feed and where they will breed. What do you mean uh, threatened again? Um, well, threatened as another species being threatened. Sorry. Gotcha. Yeah. No, no, no. As it's a, interesting yeah. that you said that. I was no, like, what, were they not threatened, threatened again? previously no, and no, we saved them? Yeah, we got no, them we back didn't. from the brink? No, sorry. That was yeah, my uh, <laughs> my poor use of the English language. Who are again threatened. <laughs> yes, threatened <laughs> like we were just talking about. Um, so, yeah, red-tailed black cockatoos in southeastern Australia, very small numbers of them, um, and- because they are very specific to where they will feed and where they will breed, um, every year in May, um, there's a project um, that's being run in 
southwestern Victoria and southeastern South Australia, so that little pocket around the South Australian border, um, where a bunch of people, including me, we'd go out and we'd be given an area and we would simply drive around looking for either the birds or their sound, because often you can't see them because they're up in the tops of trees, but you can hear them, or the evidence of them feeding, because the way they feed is they're yeah. basically just ripping off bits of gum trees yeah. and dropping them on the ground. So you get these you know, quite large branches, you know, metre or two long as piles of these things where they've been feeding in um, a particular thing, where it's- um, it's done in May in these areas because there's a lot of um, one particular species that they like that fruits at of that eucalyptus. time. Of eucalyptus. Of eucalyptus that fruits at that time. So, you know they're going to be out feeding around that time. Mm. Um, and so, the idea is that if you get a num- a num- enough people out there doing it, you can probably count almost every bird. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, there's going to be crossovers because they'll move from one place to another one during a day and they might cross over from my location to another person's location and so on. But ultimately, it's a pretty good sampling way of just saying we can guesstimate the population size. It's a good word. Guesstimate. Yeah. Do you want to explain that one? Yeah. It's a cross between I, estimate and guess. I want to see. I it wonder, is a word. I wonder if I type in definition guesstimate, if I can actually spell it. Yeah. I spelled it correctly. Mm-hmm. How old is that? There we go. Whoa, it's, it's old. Da- oh, okay. So, it is yeah, pretty it's old. It's a legit word. It yeah. goes back to the 1800s. Mm. Jesus. But it- uh, No, that's the graph. So, okay. It looks <laughs> like it started getting used around- 1930s, yeah, and then skyrocketed up pretty much overnight. Well, yeah. over it- a decade or so, and now it's you know it's um been consistently used for the last 50 years. That's pretty cool. Yeah, guess and estimate. Who yeah. figured a blend yeah. of guess and estimate? And uh, the definition here, and you can use it as a verb or a noun. A yes. guesstimate. It is yes. Or to guesstimate. To guesstimate <laughs> something. So an estimate based on a mixture of guesswork and calculation. I'm I'm surprised they didn't say guesswork and estimation. Mm. <laughs> well, you could ask. Uh, yeah. Well, estimation, I presume, is yeah, an intellectual calculation rather mm-hmm. than actually doing the numbers. But I and I have no idea of the etymology of the word. But I suspect, and I first heard it. Um, in the context of scientists using it. Yes. Of saying, let's guesstimate what we think, which will give us a ballpark of how we can- Another guesstimate term, ballpark, means is it going to sit inside this zone um, of data that we can then go and specifically try and test within that? So, it wasn't the end point, but it was a good starting point. First used by American statisticians in 1934 (laughs) or 35, it is defined as an estimate made without using adequate or complete information or more strongly as an estimate arrived at by guesswork or conjecture. Like the words estimate and guess, guesstimate may be used as a verb or a noun. Yeah. A guesstimate may be a first rough approximation pending a more accurate estimate. Or it may be (laughs) an educated guess at something for which no better information will become available. So, and it's now used. Guesstimation techniques are used in physics, cosmology, economics, and software engineering. Yeah. So, there you go. And in ecology, apparently. Yeah, so yeah exactly. So, yeah. So, <laughs> we, we're getting a guesstimate of the population size of these birds in southeastern Australia. Yeah. But that couldn't happen. Um, again, it's simultaneously on the same day where every area that these birds have been known to occur um, gets searched. 
And you simply couldn't do that as a small group of scientists. Not much you had a shitload of funding. <laughs> yeah, well, but the only way you can do it is by saying we need a couple of hundred volunteers yeah. to go out. And uh, it's a great thing to do, apart from anything else. I mean, the fun part for me is because I've got a four-wheel drive and I'm a reasonably experienced four-wheel driver, um, I tell them, give me a difficult area to go to. Mm. Give me somewhere that you're not going to have your average person in their average car be able to get to. So, I can go driving around in these little bits which are sandy and everything else. They're fun to drive in, mm. but it's also um, just a fun day out where you go. And it's it's a day out because it's typically from Melbourne or from Ocean Grove. It's a three or four hour drive to get to the location. So, you've got to be the, you know, leave home very early or you go the night before. You get up. Getting out in the morning by nine o'clock, you're in the place. You might have actually done the complete search of the place by, you know, one or two in the afternoon. So four or five hours out searching in an area, and you they have a couple of ways of doing it. But the strategy that I've you know, follow, which is one of their suggested ways, is you simply identify a route through this area mm. where you're covering as much of the possible tracks that you can you can drive through, and you stop every five hundred meters. And you just look around and you look and listen for a minute and then you move another 500 meters and you look and you listen for a minute and you do the same thing. So, is the assumption there that you're going to be able to hear any bird within 500 meters of yourself? Yeah. And you can hear them if they're calling. If there's more than one, they'll be talking to each other. Yeah. They're pretty crazy, aren't they? Those ones are- Yeah, exactly. Far out. So, do you think that this is going to make a big difference to Australian wildlife? Because I think that's going to be one of the- crucial things we're facing in the next decade or two, especially with climate change. Well, probably mainly because of climate change, but also with more suburbia, yeah. you know, with more clearing of land. It'll or be habitat you, change, no matter what the- Do you think that, that we're going to be able to maintain a lot of these species, or do you think that a lot of them are just going to go goodbye? It's going to be mismanagement. Well, I look, the, the big furry and feathery ones, uh, yeah. we're pretty likely to save. Because there's- Too much um, economic revenue from tourism. From tourism. <laughs> and look, there's just general empathy for mm-hmm. cute animals. Sorry, little spider and yeah. small lizard. No one and, cares enough about yeah, you. The, the little fish down the creek that are, you yeah. know, we're, we've introduced European carp. Or trout. And yeah. trout and whatever else in there. Um, so, I think there's- those. Obvious species are, and there's a lot of really good examples of projects that are working on those. Mm. Um, one of the most famous ones in Australia is the orange-bellied parrot, which yeah. Yeah, got down to a handful of breeding pairs. Um, and there was a drastic move take uh, made a few years ago to take most of the birds out of the wild, put them in captivity, breed, breed them, them up, and then re-release them. And that seems to have been reasonably successful. Is it the same thing for swift parrots at the moment too? Swift parrots are in- They're not quite in the Red. status that <laughs> that um, orange belly parrots are, but same problem. Yeah. Um, yeah the big problem with these guys is that they migrate, don't they, from the mainland to Tasmania, and yeah. so you have to maintain multiple to maintain habitats places. at the yes. same time and make yeah. sure they're fine because if one goes, they're screwed. Yeah. And, yeah, that migration is a really interesting one. You look at it and you go, why do they do that? And I'm sure it's because we're in a um, historical end point for them um, in geological time in that you could walk from where we live to Tasmania 7,000 years ago. And those birds would have used that the coast of of, Tasmania up all the way up into Victoria and the hinterland um, of that 
and the species that are available and so on, they would have used those continuously yeah. throughout that entire range. Um, now they're stuck with, you know, the sea levels rising a few thousand years ago and Tasmania being separated. I wonder if they just migrated across the land originally mm. and then as yeah. the sea level yeah. rose and cut, made those islands and exactly. then just completely cut the place mm. off, they've just gone, well, pff, we can make the 400k journey. Yeah. So we'll and, smash it And out. the reason they're doing it is because they breed in uh, the southwestern Tasmania. Yeah. Um, but- Winters are too cold for them there, so mm. they move north up into Victoria. But I'm sure that thousands of years ago, they just sort of migrated up and down the mm -hmm. you know, the coast for a few hundred kilometres according to when food was available, what the temperature was and so on. But now they have to make this huge jump from southwestern Tasmania into the south coast of Victoria. Um, and that in itself is a dangerous thing to do. If you've got to do it twice every year, uh, you know, you're going to get knocked out by storms. You know, once or twice you know, a decade, there'll be a storm that'll knock out half the population. Yeah. Um, and But then there's the loss of habitat in both places, the loss of the breeding habitat, which is mature forest uh, they need to breed, and then loss of- they feed on saltbush areas. Um, you know, the swift parrots are feeding on yellow gums mostly when they arrive here, and the, you know, the bellarine yellow gum, a subspecies of yellow gums, which we have a population of in Ocean Grove, and that's now threatened by just housing development. So do they come uh, to Vic do they, they come to this part of Victoria? They come to Ocean Grove. Swift parrots. Really? Yeah, well, I've had them. Ah. In our, we've had them in our backyard. Really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever um, seen any. Well, it's other rare than the now because there'll only be else, yeah. there'll only be twenty or thirty of them that that yeah. land here. And, Holy moly! Uh, and yeah, there'll be a little flock of them that flies around for a few weeks, and so they move on to the next place. Back in the day, was it? That yeah. You saw those when we first came yeah, up here. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen one for a few years. They're, they're certainly around every yeah. now and then. People report them in Ocean Grove or on the Bellarine Peninsula, uh, and other places around southern Australia as well. But the orange belly parrots um, feed mostly in um, saltbush areas and um, salt marsh. Yeah, and so their habitat again is being just wiped out because people look and go, oh, salt marshes, mud flats, you know, it's mm -hmm. useless. Um, let's get rid of it. And so, you know, we've got to maintain two completely separate habitats um, in order to have one species of bird survive. Well, I think people are starting to get that right. The same with climate change, the same with things like COVID. It's mm. not just there's a single answer to this problem. It's a multifaceted thing that you have exactly. to deal with on many fronts. And, you know, it's kind of like that rising tide brings up all boats. You have to focus on all boats, not just one, yeah. right? Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you want the transcripts and the downloads, join the premium podcast membership or the academy, and I'll see you in there. And get out and do some citizen science. Yeah, true. Go do it. Bye. Alrighty, you mob, thank you so much for listening to or watching this episode of The Goss. If you would like to watch the video, if you're currently listening to it and not watching it, you can do so on the Aussie English TV channel on YouTube. This is different from the main channel. You'll be able to subscribe to that. Just search Aussie English TV on YouTube. And if you're watching this and not listening to it, you can check this episode out also on the Aussie English podcast, which you can find via my free Aussie English podcast application on both Android and iPhone. You can download that for free or you can find it via any other good podcast uh, app that you've got on your phone, Spotify, podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is. I'm your host, Pete. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a ripper of a day and I will see you next time. Peace.